Okay, we talked the last time about the Abrahamic covenant and the way that I created a syllabus, I thought I would talk about each covenant and then the fulfillment of Jesus or the, it, the disappearance of it. And I, when I was looking at my notes, I just couldn't, I couldn't con, it just seemed out of order. And so I'm just going to go do my best to go in the order that um, I originally have taught it several times. So we'll be looking at the, the Mosaic Covenant today, which is going to be a lot of information crammed in. And we have decided to forego questions. Nobody's answering them anyway. I keep checking, so nobody's, so that's, which is fine. Uh, because it's really hard for me at the end, because there's so much information. And I, as, I, I've, 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 I'm in that tension between, there are certain things I do want to teach, but I also, you know, sometimes teachers quiz you, and the questions they get are the ones you don't remember that just didn't stand out to you. And I found in my educating my kids, I often ask them, so what do you remember? And then I, I go from there. And if they don't remember the key things, then I'll fill in the things that I feel like they need to know. But I can't do that with here in this setting. So I'm um, hoping we get some discussion. We can just discuss and talk and have questions here and rather than quiz-style questions. Um, well, we finish up the Abrahamic Covenant. And remember, we talked about three times the covenants, just as a reminder. Um, there's a grant covenant, and, a, and a, a grant covenant is one in which you have two parties that come together into a covenant, make a covenant, generally, and one is a greater party, one is a lesser party, and in a grant covenant, the greater party takes on all, all the obligations, and the lesser party gets all the benefits of the covenant, okay? Then another covenant between two, a lesser and, and, a, and a greater is called a vassal covenant. If you think of the word vassal meaning slave or servant, it kind of can clue you into what this covenant is. Another name for that is a suzerain. I'll just put that word there. And a suzerain is another word for a sovereign. So you got a suzerain, vassal, servant, king, greater, lesser. In the suzerain vassal covenant, the lesser party takes on all the obligations of the covenant in return for protection from the, from the greater party. Then we have a kinship covenant, which if you think of the word kin, um, it's two equals. And it's a covenant which they become re related in a sense, adoption. They come into a covenant, they become related, they um, become family. So those are the three. And if you remember with the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham was sleeping when God made the covenant. And God swore on himself that if he doesn't fulfill the covenant, let him be like those animals that were split apart, which we know that that can't happen, but it's obvious then by the, that picture that God took all the obligations on himself. Abraham was sleeping. There were no conditions for Abraham. Now, Genesis 22 was not a condition. It was that God saying, hey, I'm all in, Abraham. Are you all in? And Abraham had the choice to say no, but Abraham instead said, no, I'm all in too. So that was a grant covenant, you see, because Abraham wasn't even awake when it was made, let alone agree to the conditions of the covenant, and, and he had no obligations and no stipulations for the covenant. So those are the three. If you remember that Noah, the covenant with Noah was a grant covenant. And it seems that God likes grant covenants. So we're coming to the Mosaic covenant, and we're going to start with Israel, and we're going to start in Exodus. And this is, I, this is, I've said this is one of the saddest moments, if not the saddest moment in the history of Israel. Probably the second saddest, the first saddest, the most the saddest moment was probably when they rejected their Messiah. But this is one of the saddest moments in the history of Israel. Now remember, 
we're going we're gonna to pick up at Exodus 19 where they were, they'd left um, Egypt and they had traveled through the Sinai Peninsula and they were at Mount Sinai. And they're camped around Mount Sinai. Now, prior to this moment, there has been no law yet. There's been 2,500 years of human history, at least, depending on, in the, according to biblical history anyway, there's been 2,500 years of human history and no law. And then after the law, there's about 1,300 years between the time of the law and Jesus comes. So in reality, there are twice as many years without the law than there were with the law. But the advent of the law, when this, when this covenant came into being, it brought a dramatic shift, okay? Second Corinthians tells us that he's made us ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but the spirit, because the letter kills. And we're going to see here the difference between pre-law and post-law. There's a big difference. In Exodus 15, if you want to check it, it's verses 20 through 26, the Israelites grumbled and there was no punishment. But we go to Numbers 11, after the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Israelites grumbled and God brought a destroying fire. In Exodus 16, they're grumbling about manna and quail and God doesn't punish them. But in Numbers 33, when they grumble about the manna and the quail, God brings the killing plague. In Exodus 16, there's a Sabbath violation, but there's no punishment for it. But in Numbers, when you violate the Sabbath after the law, there's a death by stoning. So you see a dramatic shift in the way God deals with the Israelites pre-law and post-law. And, and, and Paul talks about that several times about the, the law bringing death. It brought, it brought, the law brought wrath and the letter of the law kills. So the spirit brings life. Um, so we're going to pick up in Exodus 19.4. Um, Moses has gone up to the mountain. The Lord called to him and, and, um, and he says, this is what you're going to say to the house of Jacob. So he wants Moses to tell the Israelites, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter echoes this sentiment when he's speaking in his letter that we are in the new covenant. The church is a royal priesthood. So God is offering to the Israelites what we have in the new covenant. They can be a priest, which means they can have communion with him. They, can be, they will be his own people, his own possession, right. if they'll keep the covenant with him. Okay, So in a sense, he's offering. Now, it's really hard to determine. And from what I was taught, this is a grant covenant. But you do have the words, if you obey my voice. So that seems like a stipulation. So I was, my curiosity was piqued today, and I didn't really have a chance to go back. I'd like to really look at the evidence behind this being a, a grant covenant but it does seem that God is, God is offering them intimacy with him. That they can be his possession, treasured possession, priests and a holy nation for him, okay? And they accepted. They said, yeah, let's do that. And so then God gave them instructions on how Moses was to prepare that, how they were supposed to prepare for this covenant ceremony. God's going to come down on the mountain and within sight of the people. And so they need to consecrate themselves, wash themselves for a period of three days, and then on the third day he's going to come down in a dense cloud. But they can't touch the mountain or come near it until they hear the blast of the ram's horn. Okay, So they have these stipulations that God is saying. And we find with Noah, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I want you to build this ark. With Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, now go do this. So and here again, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you guys, but this is what I want you to do to get ready for this. And they were invited to approach him, but after three days. But what happened? 
On the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled, and Moses brought the people out to meet God. Whoa. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And if we go down a little bit further, um, God again warns them, not even, even though he's going to let them approach, now he's saying, don't come near the mountain, I'm going to kill you. So what transpired? If we go to Deuteronomy, we see some behind-the-scenes information. Deuteronomy fills in some gaps or provides different information for us. And in this case, Deuteronomy 5, Moses, in Deuteronomy, and we're going to get to Deuteronomy at the end of today, hopefully, if we have time, Moses is going over their history in the, early, in the opening chapters of, of Deuteronomy. And so he's, remind, he's talking about this here, and he's telling them, you know, when you guys heard the voice out of the darkness when the mountain was ablaze with fire, you guys remember that? All the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, the Lord is, God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We've heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks to them, but now why should we die? We've seen that we can see God and not die, but why are we going to take the chance? Now, we're afraid this fire is going to consume us, and we're going to die if we hear the voice of God any longer. God is offering to them an intimate relation where they can commune with him. They hear the thunder, and they're like freaked out, and they're saying, nah, we don't want to. So Moses, you go near. You listen to what God wants. You listen to what he speaks out of the fire, and then tell us what God wants, and we'll listen and obey. And so God is offering them individually an intimate relationship with him, and they're frightened by him, and they are the ones that request a mediator. It is not God that's asking for a mediator. They're saying, no, Moses, you go, and you tell us what to do. And so now we see in, in verses 20 and 20 to 22 of Exodus that God then calls Moses to the top of the mountain. Now, he is talking about priests here, just as a reminder. Priest here is not, we're not talking about Levitical priests yet, because we haven't got that part of the Mosaic law yet. We're talking about the oldest surviving member of the household. And according to the Hebraic culture and many of the cultures of the day, the oldest surviving member of the family, the oldest male member of the family was considered the priest, automatically priest of the family. So we have this moment in history when God is talking to them audibly, and they don't want to because of their slave-minded fear. And let's... We can kind of understand it. You know, they had just seen what God had done to the, the gods of Egypt. And they had seen his power. And so we can kind of understand their fear. But they were so gripped by this, and they just they didn't want it. And they chose just rules then. And, and how many people are still choosing that today? And, and my, one of my concerns when we, when we present the gospel as a hellfire and brimstone message, well, I'll choose rules then over that. And, and we, we misrepresent what the gospel message is and what God is asking of us when God really wants relationship with, with everybody. And, but freedom is, scary. freedom is scary. Yes, it is. And, and it's safe. Rules are safer. Just tell me what I got to do and I'll be happy. Just tell me what I can do. But they weren't. And none of us really are living in that kind of relation. But it feels easier. It doesn't require me to get to know the person. There's that certainty of knowing over the uncertainty of discerning. Now, it's interesting that this is the first instance recorded in the Bible that the people were so afraid of God, they refused to interact with him. We had Noah. We had Abraham. We had Adam and Eve. We had Noah. We had Abraham. We even had Hagar, a slave girl. 
up to this point in time, we had various people interacting with God, and it seems like he's speaking to them audibly and honoring them and entering into a relationship with them. And this is the first time where we have people that are so afraid of God that they refuse to interact with him. And a large part is because they've just come out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, and they just saw how the Egyptian gods were soundly defeated by this God that's coming down the mountain with thunder. And we also realized, you know, God asked Abraham to do an offensive thing, to sacrifice his son, to see if he's all in. And God is again um, asking, he's, he's testing their perseverance. And I've, I know of some teachers who, who speak similarly of, of tongues, that, that it's not necessary, not, not necessary in a way to say it's the sign that you're, that, um, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's almost like that offensive portal to get over, that, that's, that, that that feels humiliating or nonsense to people, that it doesn't make sense to them. So they reject his offer of a relationship, a grant covenant where everybody would be a priest, and they elected Moses to be the mediator. Um, so we're going to go into the next chapter. I'm going to need some water. I know it. Um, we're going to the next chapter, and we have the Ten Commandments. And it's in the Ten Commandments we see this type of covenant. Okay? It's a kinship covenant. Now, how do we know that? All right? Um, let me, he, um, he tells them, speaks them these words, you shall not, all the Ten Commandments, you shall not, all those, all those things, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. And the people perceived the thunder, lightning, and the sound, and they saw it all, they trembled, and they stood at a distance. And every, I don't know, when I read the Old Testament, when I read this account of the Israelites, I'm sad. Whenever I read here when it says they stood at a distance, and another place where it says that, that Moses goes into the tent of meeting with God, and the Israelites stood at their own tents from afar. And there's just something in my heart that just feels sad because I think every one of them could have done that. They could have been there. Now, our understanding, we go by Charlton Heston's um, Ten Commandments. Our understanding of the Ten Commandments kind of hinders us from really understanding what's going on here. We imagine them to be two rounded off tablets. And, let me. I'm not sure the shape matters. We imagine them to be two rounded off tablets and one, two, three, four, five, here, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You think that because two tablets and we imagine five on one and five on the other. But they but um let me get down here. Oh, it's in Exodus 32, because we're gonna skip a whole lot of stuff there. Exodus tells us that they're written on both sides, front and back. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Likely they were square, but that's not that big of a deal. But when it, it tells us it's written on the front and the back, and this gives us a detail. These two tablets were exactly the same. So you had this tablet with, I don't know if it's 1 through 5 and 6 through 10 on the back. I don't know. But front and back, the commandment's written on. And then the other tablet's the same, front and back. The, he's writing this covenant, these covenant laws on these two tablets, and they're the same. But why, are, why is he writing them the same? And this, this idea mimics a kinship covenant of the day. And what would happen was, Stan and I would come into a covenant together, and we would write two copies of this covenant agreement. Stan would take his copy home and put it in a box in his God's temple, and that box was called an ark. Israelites weren't the only ones that had an ark. I would take my copy home to my my tabernacle or my temple and put my copy in an ark. And what that was doing was it was calling on our gods to help us honor this covenant. So Stan, if I refuse to honor this covenant, 
my God is going to hold me accountable for not violating that covenant. My God is also going to protect me if you decide to, to attack me. So it's, it's, it's calling on the gods. We're, we're not just coming into this agreement as two people. We're calling on our gods to, and that help, to strengthen us, to protect us, and to keep us faithful to the covenant. So if I violate the covenant, my God's going to punish me. And if you violate the covenant by attacking me, your God's going to punish you. But what happened is, in the Sinai covenant, God is representing himself. So typically, we would have this temple with the ark here, and these two temples, and the ark here, and we would, this, this is how it would be. But in the Sinai covenant, both copies were placed inside the ark. Okay? God was representing himself. He had no God to keep him in line. There wasn't, somebody going to, there wasn't somebody over him that was going to keep him faithful to his covenant. He, and he, was, well, he tells us, I've said it before, that he's going to magnify his word over his name, that he chose to put himself under his word as a promise that he would keep his promise. But it put him in a strange position. It put him in an awkward position. Because God has, because both the copies were with Moses, God was obligated himself to be both protector and punisher of the Israelite people. See, in this case, my God is only going to punish Stan's people when they, when they don't, well, he's going to, hang on, let me back up here. Yes, our God is going to punish us. But in this, here he had to fulfill both roles here, okay? He has to, now God now had to hold himself accountable to the covenant and hold you accountable to the covenant, Israel accountable to the covenant. His covenant. He wasn't just responsible for himself, he was responsible for his covenant partner. And this put him, so it put him in position of punishing his covenant partner. In here, you're not punishing me in this. When, we, when Stan and I go into covenant, Stan doesn't have to punish me. My God's going to punish me. Okay? My God's going to hold me accountable. But now, now it's almost as if, so God now, has to be, is my covenant partner, but he also has to be my punisher. He can't just be a covenant partner. Stan and I can be in this, in this covenant together, in a true kinship covenant, and Stan only has to worry about upholding his end of the bargain. He doesn't have to, he's, he, he's a faithful covenant partner, that's all he has to do. He's depending upon my God to punish me. But now God wants to be that kind of a covenant partner, but because of this arrangement, he also has to be a punisher. Not only does he have to be a punisher, he also has to, it puts him at odds with their enemies. Because if Stan decides he's going to go to battle against me or if he doesn't like something, then it's, it's, my God is responsible for going to war against Stan. If I start a war with Stan, my God is responsible, his faithfulness is responsible for me to back him up, for him to back me up. So I'm calling on my God if I decide to go into war too. You're smiling. You're talking about going to war against Stan. I know. <laughs> I know. Okay. I know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to examine the difference between. So this isn't God's idea. He didn't want to be both punisher and covenant partner. He wanted to be covenant partner. And he wanted Israel to uphold their, their end of the covenant. But he actually he wanted a grant covenant because he knew he, they couldn't keep it. But they said, no, let's have a kinship covenant. So they requested him then to basically be their punisher. Not just covenant partner, but punisher. God wanted a nation of priests who had direct access to him and then represented him to the rest of the world. He didn't, he didn't want to be at odds with Israel's enemies. He wanted Israel to represent him to the world. 
But now that he was put in this position because of their request, now he has to follow them into battle and defend them. Otherwise, he wouldn't be considered a faithful God, according to the, definite, the idea of the day. If he had not gone to fight battles for them, he would not have been a faithful God. And so he was willing to put himself under that idea, under that, sacrifice his reputation, and allow, allow that to be his, his, his um, heart to be misrepresented. And he's willing to do that for this time period because of Israel's request. Are you with me? Now, this, all this helps explain God's responses before Sabbath violation. He doesn't do anything. He's just wanting to be a, he's just wanting to be a covenant partner with them. But after they request this covenant, well, then he's got to punish them for covenant violations that were written on these tablets of stone that are in the temple, that are in the tooth. Okay? Now he's obligated to rain down judgment on the Canaanites. Rather than, rather than being a priest to the world, now, rather than Israel being priests to the world, now God has to rain down judgment on Canaanites and whoever, Perizzites, Hittites, all those people, Jebusites, that fight against Israel. And if he hadn't done that, he would have violated the covenant with Israel. He would have violated his obligations as a covenant partner. So the kingdom of priests was plan A. Yes, kingdom of priests was plan A. And Yeah, and I, and I think there is something that God speaks to us, but yeah. Now, um, when, we, when we understand this whole thing, that God didn't request this, that Israel requested it, and because of their slave-minded fear there at Mount Sinai, God became their punisher as well as their covenant partner and their ally in fights that he didn't necessarily pick or choose. It helps us understand and see the Old Testament with a different view suddenly our view of God becomes a little bit different. We start to understand the God of the Old Testament, and it helps us understand why it's important for us to not balance the justice of God and the love of God. We don't have to balance this Old Testament view of God and the New Testament view of God revealed in Jesus. This, this view that we have of the Old Testament God was God's acquiescence, his coming under what man was asking him to do in order to be faithful. His, it, was a, it, was a, it was a giving, it, it was a putting himself under what they expected in coming into covenant, what they requested. And, and 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the mosaic being a veil over God and hiding him. And only in Jesus is that veil going to be taken away. So the, this covenant with, with Israel didn't represent God's heart. Like Tim said, being a priest was God's plan A. God has always wanted us to be in an intimate relationship with him and represent him to the world. And Israel's like, no, we can't do that. And this covenant, right now, a kinship covenant, placed a veil over God's heart. I don't want to keep... Um... What do you have idea? You mentioned justice and love being balanced. Mm-hmm. Is that something... Because I just came up in a conversation recently that I had with someone who I won't name. Um, how have we bumped into that? Um just like you have in conversation where, we're, where you talk about God's love. Yeah, but you've got to remember he's just. And I have two responses because they're not going to understand this. I could go into all this. But what, I think we misunderstand God's justice. We think of God's justice as being punitive. And if you look at this covenant and look throughout history, God's justice has never been punitive. What is justice? It's defending the cause of the widowers and orphans. 
Justice for God is restorative. That's usually how I answer that question rather than going all this because people still have this God of the Old Testament. He is just as much that as he is this God in the New Testament. I'm like, no, he's not. That's not who he was. There's a veil over his heart. That was, what, that's the, that was the, the God that the Israelites requested. That was what they expected of him. And he was willing to come under that. But to getting into all that, with, depending on the time of conversation, you won't always have it. You were talking about the cross. Yeah. The okay. Okay, right. At least in some, you know, at least in some sense, and I said, well, it is definitely him rescuing us from Yes, it's for, he's restoring us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, even though the law, the law was a veil, something God never asked for, but even in the law, he did everything he could to reveal his heart. So think about this. As slaves, when they came to Sinai, they were accustomed to working seven days a week from dawn to dusk. But what did he do? He gave them the commandment to take one day off, to have one day of rest. To, to even, even in this law, he's saying, you, you're going to need to take one day off. They didn't see it as a revelation of God's heart for them, and they turned it into a crippling weight later on. We also see numerous places where God is saying, I'm going to drive out your enemies before you. So we see his heart is not necessarily for war and for the Israelites, for his people to destroy people, but he was going to drive them out. The one place he talks about using a hornet. Now, at Mount Sinai is the last time we read that God audibly spoke corporately. After this point in time, he spoke through others. He spoke through Moses. Later on, he spoke through Samuel. He spoke through a series of prophets. But this is the moment. This moment here at Mount Sinai is that official, that transition away from God's original heart to be in communion with man. That his original heart was what he had in the garden with Adam and Eve. And this moment in Sinai's history, this moment in Israel's history, was the transition away from God's original desire for that. And now, from this point forward until Jesus, he speaks to the Israelites through mediator. And eventually, those um, mediators actually end up becoming burdensome and creating more and more burden on them. Are you with me? You following me? So... Um, so God, at the end of their chapter, in chapter 19 and 20, God tells Moses to come up, and they're seeing all that. They're scared. But while he's up on that mountain, Aaron was left in charge. And the Israelites got tired of waiting. They were wondering what was going to happen, what was happening to Moses. They were grumbling about it. They began to think, ah, he's probably died. Let's make of God. He says, up, let's get up. Up, make gods who will go before us. And this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. Now, only a month earlier, they'd heard the audible voice of God. Only a month earlier, they heard his voice calling them into asking them, offering them a relationship with him. And here they witnessed his glory and his presence. Yet within 40 days of that, making that covenant, they violated it by making an idol. And I think it's important for us to remember, these people weren't as stupid as we assume. We think, how would they... They weren't making this idol saying this idol brought them out of Egypt. This idol represented to them the God who brought them out. I've heard people kind of say, how do they think that calf brought them out? No, the calf was the image. The calf was just the image of the God. What, they didn't think that this calf was a God that did anything. It was the image. But God said he didn't want any images made of himself. And you can, you can get a clue here because in verse chapter 32, 5, Aaron, um, they, they, they make the God, they make this, the calf, and Aaron makes a proclamation, said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
They're planning on having a feast of God. And they've created, they weren't seeking after other gods necessarily. They made an image of the God that they thought represented the Lord that they heard on the mountain, the one that rescued them and brought them out. They were, they were used to images. and that, Yes, they were. And, and, I, and it didn't give them security. I don't know, but God was very clear in the commandments, don't make an image. Don't make an image. And I believe it's because we're supposed to be an image, our images. And we, we, we are the image. He wanted, mankind was made in the image of God. There's no other image that can be made of him. Plus, their worship wasn't necessarily what he desired. It says, they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that was a tame Puritan way of saying they ate a lot and turned it into an orgy. It was basically an orgiastic free-for-all. And this wasn't the kind of worship that God wanted. It was what they were used to from Israel. So let, let's always keep in mind the reasons they're doing this isn't because they're stupid or because they're so misguided. It is what they're accustomed to. And when we come into the new covenant, there are things that we cling to that we are accustomed to that aren't necessarily what reflective of the heart of God or what God is asking. And, it, and, and it's, we're instantly transformed. We're a new creation. But in our minds, we still are used to the old man. We're still used to the old way of doing things, and our mind needs to be renewed. Their mind hasn't been renewed yet. And so they entered into this worship. And God tells Moses he's going to destroy them. And Moses intercedes throughout the Pentateuch. It just seems like Moses is a whole lot more patient than God. So that makes me think Moses probably wrote it. I don't, I don't know, but anyway. So Moses implored God. And what did Moses appeal to? He appealed, he appealed to God on the basis of the grant covenant with Abraham. He said, turn from your burning anger and relent from your... Well, it did kind of appeal to his reputation. You know, the, the Egyptians are going to think you couldn't handle us and you couldn't take care of us. But he also said, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore, to whom you swore by your own self. He's reminding God, you made a covenant with Abraham. You made a covenant, and that covenant involves us. Remember that. If we're not doing it right here, remember, remember the covenant made with Abraham and be faithful to that. So, um, so we have this kinship covenant. They do this, and what God does, so God agrees not to kill them, but only those involved in the worship. And so what he does is he has the Levite, the tribe of Levi, strap on a sword and go through the camp, killing a brother, friend, and neighbor. And about 3,000 people were, died that day as a punishment for it. Now, interestingly, in the New Testament, and this is something maybe someday I'll really study in, in detail, but I've heard a number of scholars connect these two things. In the New Testament, there was a worship service that got out of hand, the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved that day. The letter kills, and the Spirit brings life. They were, in the New Testament, they were faithful to what Jesus had asked them to do. The Spirit broke out, and they, were, they weren't necessarily well-behaved people if you look at the response of those around them. But the Spirit fell on 3,000 people. It gave them boldness. Peter spoke and preached, and 3,000 people were saved. This is a contrast between the old and new covenants, between the covenant the people desired and the covenant God desired. Let me look, I'm going to look at the time. So now the idol worshipers are destroyed. What we're going to do next, we're going to decide, decide. God says it's time for Israel to move on, but he's not going to go with them. He says, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Isn't it interesting? You and the people you brought up out of Egypt. <laughs> yeah. And good land, I'm going to, I promised on oath to Abraham. So fine, I'll remember Abraham. You take him up. You go ahead. 
Yes. Yeah, that's it. You take them up. Yeah, you take them that land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'll send an angel before you to help you out. Drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go on up to that land of milk and honey. But I'm not going to go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And I might destroy you on the way. So God's not going to go with them. So, um, but the people didn't, weren't, they didn't, they didn't like that idea. They, and this is where um, they mourned it. And I'm, um, uh, they, they didn't like the idea. So I'm trying to figure out how much I want to read here with time. Moses um, then sought the Lord. And this is the sad part. Whenever Moses went to his tent, all the people would rise and they would stand at his tent. Sometimes I think it's almost like somebody standing in the back corner of a worship service and watching people worship and wishing they could enter in and not knowing how. And I guess I, was, I find that sad. That I mean, I know what it's like. I know, what it likes, I know what it feels like to feel like I'm unable to worship. And it's not a very good feeling. And, and when, I'm, when my heart is too heavy, I don't experience it very often, but I feel like something's been stolen from me. Um, and so I think about this, but it's never stolen. It's always relinquished. It's given up. And here the Israelites gave it up. But it's interesting that there was one person that would not depart from the tent, and that man was Joshua. And we'll hear more about Joshua later. And Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel continually. And these conversations that Moses has repeatedly with God intrigue me, similar to the conversation that Abraham entered into with God over the fate of Sodom. Is God playing some sort of game or is Moses really influencing God? Does Moses' intercession on behalf of Israel have any effect? If I were a Calvinist, I would say no. And according to a true Calvinist, then really our prayers of intercession would have no effect on God. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily full Arminian, but I do lean toward believing that we do have influence on God as his, as his covenant partners, as his friends, as his children, as his bride. And I think, we, I think we part when we find out his heart, maybe it's his desire all along. Probably it's his desire and we partner with it. When we partner with it in prayer, we bring it to earth by our, by our, by our voicing it. But we don't have this here with Moses. Is Moses influencing God? We don't, he doesn't have the new covenant yet. So, I don't know. It's intriguing to me. That's the ordaining. So if the people, people if the people are of the elect. That's true. That you've got a whole lot. Saying, yeah, I know. My yeah. Think it's not quite as They do. We all we all tend to think that our theology is far superior, right. <laughs> don't we? And it, and yes, that's a good point though, that you know. Um just a quick run through the rest of Exodus, just you know, the, most of Exodus, the rest of Exodus tells how they began to walk out God's instructions. 20 through 2 to 30 are the instructions of what to make and how. 31 to 40 are the Israelites carrying out those instructions. 35 to 37 tell the gathering of materials and building the furniture of the tabernacle. 38 and 39 tell the garments and the wash basin. But by Exodus 40, everything was finished and the tabernacle was set up according to God's design. 
sorry. And that's when the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory, so Moses couldn't even get in. God filled the tabernacle so thoroughly that God couldn't even, that, that Moses couldn't even get in. And this is where it tells us then throughout their journeys when the cloud lit or the pillar of fire left, they departed, they left, they packed up camp and they followed it whenever it stopped. So the Israelites knew they had tangible evidence of God's presence with them throughout this time. They, and they knew that God was meeting with Moses on a regular basis. But they still, they still had a distant relationship with him. And I guess sometimes as, as I'm saying that, would I choose a tangible pres- sense of his presence and distance or something that's less tangible and, and intimacy? And not that we have to choose. I'm not saying that. Sometimes in our relationship, some of us feel that we're choosing. Some of us feel like um, his presence is much less intangible to us. And so it's by faith. We're, but anyway, um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to write much on the board, am I? I'm going to pick up with Numbers 13 because this is where the, the timeline of Israel's history picks up. And we're at, looking at the clock here, good. I think we're good. They've gotten to the promised land. And according to Numbers 13, God tells Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land. I'm, uh, hold that thought according to Moses, according to Numbers 13. God says, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. According, ah, that's going to help me bring my other notes up here. I have this on several different things. That's vassal, kinship, there we go. According to Deuteronomy, and I'm not going to pull it up here, um, it was their plan to send send spies. So we have two different things. Was it God's plan? If it was God's plan, this is the concept, not, hey guys, I want you to go check it out and see if you can take the land. It's, guys, I want you to check it out and see how good it is. I've promised you this. This is the land I've promised you. You're going to have it. Now, why don't you just spend a few days just looking it over, dreaming, thinking about all that, all that's going to, what life is going to be like while you're living there, and then come back. And this wasn't a matter of check it out and see if you can take these right. people, which is what it became. Yes, it was, hey, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? Is it fertile? kind of towns are they? It was, it was a, let's, just, let's see how good this is. Yeah, it is in Deuteronomy. Moses says, here, I thought it was in my own notes. All of you came near and said, let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word of the way that we need to go in the cities into which we will come. And so it seemed like a good idea to me, so I chose 12 men. I don't know who it was. There are these various discrepancies between what we, the history we read in Exodus and Numbers and the history, the retelling of the history we see, read in Deuteronomy. Either way, God had promised them this land, and they freaked out, thinking that they can't get it, that it's going to be too hard. And they hatched this plan because of the report of what, 10 guys. They didn't listen to Joseph or Joshua and Caleb. And they, let's go back to Egypt. They get this plan. They're going to kill Moses. They're going to go back to Egypt. And um, do, if you think about it, is, is he, here again, uh, that reminds me of Teresa Liebscher. Anyway, um, she always punctuates every other sentence. Here again, here again. Um, it's easy for us to look at them and think, guys, you just saw, seen all this. Why are, you, why are you doubting? But how often do we look at the giants in our land rather than the goodness of God? We look at those things that we too often look at the thing, reasons why we can't do something than why God has already promised it to us and we can go after it. 
And it's just human tendency to focus on the negatives. We, if, if we're going to think about the things he's done in our own lives, depending on where we're at, we think of our failures rather than the things that God has done through us. We focus on our giants and the negatives, just like they did. God threatens again to kill them. And again, Moses intervenes. And God could have destroyed them, but he decides not to. And the rest of Numbers talks about their 40-year journey. And let me pull up another thing here because I want to make sure I got all my notes here. I have this on so many things. I'm going to skip all this, I think. Yeah. So the rest of Numbers is their 40-year journeys, their wanderings. And I've seen this, and I don't like it. What do I do with my marker? There it is. You've seen this meme. It has a person on a bike here, a person here, and then a straight line to where they want to be. And that's supposed to be our desire. And then we see... Another one. And that's, that's God's plan. And we, we take this by the wanderings in, in the desert. That wasn't God's plan, guys. <laughs> this was never God's plan. He's not some crazy guy who doesn't know how to get from point A to point B. This is our doing. That's our doing. But through all of this, Every, every twist and turn through all this, we can exploit that season. We can, we can mine the areas we go through for gems. Whether they're our choice or somebody else's choice, it doesn't matter. But we can mine it all for what God has for us, even though it wasn't his original plan. And I talked about it with the, when I was up at the, I was at that poolside. I was at the poolside because of a conflict I had. I, was, I didn't come home because of it. But that's why I was at the poolside. See, there's, there's, there's things that happen in our lives that see, seem like they're the enemy or our own poor choices, not God's, but God can certainly bring good out of it. So their 40-year journey was because they, they didn't believe God and they decided it. And all the wars they get involved in are a picture of their covenant partner getting back. I mean, Canaan attacks, and as, God's, as their covenant partner, God defends Israel. So it's that whole story there throughout the wanderings. And... That generation dies out, and we're at a new generation. Now, um, that was a quick run-through of Exodus and Numbers, and this part, this first part of the Mosaic Covenant. Does anybody have any questions before I get into the second part? I can't believe I got through that in 45 minutes. That's amazing. But I'm glad, because I've got some things that I want, really want to talk about if we finish. That Any questions? No questions? We good? Can you summarize? Summarize. Okay? In like a sentence or two? In a sentence or two. Okay. <laughs> I know that's huge. Whoa. Concern. There we go. Yeah, I'm trying to get. Okay. The, um, that that, yeah. Sorry. I'm trying to fix this. This is just ridiculous. Anyway, yes, I think I can summarize. I don't know if it's one or two sentences. We'll see. The Israelites leave Egypt with slave minds, with a slave mindset. And they get to the mountain that God is offering them. I want you to be my people. You are my chosen people, and you are going to be priests for me, a holy nation. You're going to represent me to the world. And they're still freaking out because what they saw him do back there, and they're like, ah, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I don't know if we really want to get all that close to that kind of God because they're, they're slave-minded fear. Right. Moses, you go up there. You just go on up there, and you tell us what to do. 
So they make this, these set of laws. Everything changes. Now all of a sudden God's their punisher. And they make this, this set of laws that God is obligating himself to. And this, but it's, it's a kinship covenant right now. Um, and then they have that calf incident, which that's not really summarizing it. Um, but it's partly because of the calf incident. And I mean, that's an important part of it. Then they get to the promised land finally with this covenant in place and they're like I don't know if we trust you yet I think that I don't know that we can do this I, I know you you're saying all this you're saying you're going to be our you're going to protect us but I, I don't think so I think we'll just no thanks but no thanks we'll go back to Egypt and that's in a nutshell what happens through Exodus and Numbers so the story is essentially the Lord wanting to bless his people but his people's distrust and fear mm -hmm. Causing them to back away. Causing them to back away. Blessing. Yeah. Causing them to back away. And then that whole generation has to dies out because of their unfaithfulness. And I know that I've read some scholars who point it to their unfaithfulness of the Mount Sinai. It seems more directly related to their lack of trust in him at the, the um, promised land. Right. And but that was a grievous thing that they did back there, too. It was evidence that this, this covenant is not going to work out very well because within a month of them him offering the covenant and them downgrading it and saying, no, we don't, let's let Moses do it, they're already screwing up. So now we have the end of, we're at the end of um, Numbers. Leviticus is, is all priest stuff. It's, it's prime. There, are a few, there are a few stories in there, some troublesome stories in there, too, um, but it's primarily orders for the Levites. So we're going to skip Leviticus and go right to Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die, and leadership is changing hands to Joshua. And if two kings were in a covenant, and one king, one of them, didn't, didn't fulfill the obligations of their covenant very well, they're going to rewrite these things. They're going to rewrite the covenant as it gets transferred to another generation. And if the one king didn't fulfill it, they, they're going to change the stipulations of the covenant that they had together. You understand? So Stan and I had this covenant together, and I was a pitiful covenant partner. So when we pass this on to the next generation, his next generation and my generation, his generation will say, uh, y'all didn't really do that real well, so we're going to change this. And that's what happened with Israel, and it got downgraded to a vassal suzerain covenant. And now it's no longer a kinship covenant, okay? It's now become a vassal. And we're going to stick this in because this was the covenant but the stipulations became more like a vassal. And we know this is the covenant, and I'll get there in a little bit. I'm going to get ahead of myself. A suzerain vassal, the suzerain, the vassal, the servant, takes on all the obligations in, in, in return for just, this is ridiculous. No, I'm sorry. All right. Ta-da. Ta-da. Yeah. So this is a downgrade. Now, it's it, very interesting, and I don't know. Now, this downgrade is connected to the sin of the, the wilderness gener of the second generation, too. Deuteronomy 4.3, let me read that. Remember, Deuteronomy, like I said, I'm, I'm going all over the place now. In Deuteronomy, I'm not going to go do there first. I'm going to come back there, see if I remember to come back there. If I mess up my, you know, you ever do that when you mess up your notes and then you forget to go back to something? I don't know. Yes. Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy almost identically mirrors other ancient Near Eastern covenants of the day. And I think I have it on your notes that the first 
chapter, for, an open, the opening verses, Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 5, is like the preamble. Every, every covenant, vassal covenant, would start with a preamble stating when the meeting took place and who the mediator of that covenant was. So we're talking about these are the words Moses spake. It says where they were. And Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the law that God had given them, according to all the commands that God had given them. And so Moses is setting this out, this meeting, where it took place, and who the, Moses is the mediator of the covenant. And it served as an introduction. Then, then you have, so we have the preamble. I'm going to erase this here. That's the kinship. We're going to erase. So we have the preamble. And we have a preamble to our constitution. Okay, and then you have a historical prologue. Can I get that right or am I getting out of order? Yeah. The historical prologue, this is chapters 1 through 4. This is a covenant history. This historical prologue is basically going to say, how did we work out this covenant? What happened between Stan and I in the years that we had this covenant? And it tells the story of our life together and how that covenant worked out. Was, were we faithful? This is, I haven't, <laughs> the, the war was just a, um, what's the word I want? It was just a hypothetical situation. So this, the historical prologue is how those two parties walked out the covenant together, okay? And including, but not limited to, the unfaithfulness of the previous covenant, if one person was. The purpose of this historical prologue is to establish justification for the, the, the sovereign, the greater party, to continue to reign. And then we have stipulations and obligations. And this is the bulk of the uh, chapters. There's that there, okay? If you, there, um, there's a book. It's more of an academic book. I haven't even tried to get into it. It's only about this thick, but I still haven't really tried to read it. It's about five by eight about 130 pages. It looks boring as all get out. I'm not sure why I got it. I think because I just get a book, I think, okay, this will give me more, something more to research. But she goes through all of this and identifies. And there's also one, Ancient Near Eastern Thought, and so the title's a little longer than that. And it has pictures and examples of other, co other covenants of the Ancient Near East. So this section lists what's required inside this covenant. And then we have the final sanctions. And I know this is long. Just stick with me here. I'm not going to go. What is that? Let me see. Is it 27 to 30? That's what I thought. And, and then we have the, the uh, cont continuity, how we're going to keep it going. Okay. So if you, um, if you would look at any covenant of the day, it would have each of these things. And Deuteronomy is just almost, just, it's just so close. Everything in Deuteronomy just mirrors this outline for them. So we know that this here is, the, is a, is a kind of like a constitution of sorts for this new covenant. Okay? Now, let's see here. I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I should have highlighted the notes that I really wanted to get to. Okay? We, if, if we look at this like a constitution, um, who is obligated to the Constitution of the United States? The people of the United States. Um, is a citizen of France obligated to the Constitution of the United States? No. No. Can a ruler of Japan use any authority based on the Constitution of the United States here in the United States? No. Okay. 
Deuteronomy was the constitution of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not a book of law for us. Now, we can learn from it. Like all of it, all of the Bible we can learn from. But this was a constitution for, the, for ancient Israel. It's not a code of rules for us. And remember, God offered them a grant covenant. They said, no, let's take, an, let's take kinship, and then, then it gets down to this. I don't know if I put it in your notes. I should have my, I can't have both. There's this covenant here. So now we have this covenant right here. Okay? And there's a lot of differences, a whole lot of laws. But if you look at Deuteronomy 31, this book of law, remember the covenants, these, these uh, tablets, were pl- both of them are placed inside the ark. This is, this, that represents, this is the covenant that God made with the Israelites placed inside the ark. And we talked all about that. This book of law was placed outside the ark. It was not placed inside the ark. And that means that it's an addendum. The true covenant was the first covenant, was the first covenant. I was going to say first covenant God offered, but they didn't, they didn't accept that one. The first covenant they accepted. The kinship covenant is the covenant that they had. The law was added later because they did a horrible job. But it's, it's, not, it's not part of the covenant. It's like an extra weight that was added. What are the differences? Well, the, one took place on the plains of Moab, the other Sinai. One was a result of their idolatry. I'm just going to go through. Deuter- the Deuteronomy covenant was a result of their... Do I have it in your notes? I'm not going to read all that if I have it in your notes. I don't. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can you see upside down? No, I don't have it in there. Okay, I'll read it all. That I was thinking... I can read up, yeah, anyway. So the Deuteronomy covenant here in Deuteronomy took place on the plains of Moab, where the one that took place at Mount Sinai. The Deuteronomy covenant was a result of their idolatry, whereas the Sinai covenant was because they were afraid. One was direct disobedience, one was fear. There were no curses in the Sinai covenant. It was just punishment. Okay, there are no curses. But here, and you'll see, and if you look at, read chapters 27, 28, there are curses for their disobedience. A lot of curses. And we're going to get to that. Yeah, we're going to get to that ratification too. There was an increased level of mediation. It wasn't just Moses. Now you had the Levite priests that you had to go through. There was, inc- there was increased severity. There was less intimacy. It just changed so much. Now they went from being kin, like sons, to being servants. So the relationship to God changed. It lessened. It's less familial. Okay? And Yahweh becomes even more distant than he was here. And all along, he just wanted to be close to them. There was a more prominent role of the Levites in the Deuteronomy law, in this one here. And that gave rise to the oral law and the Talmud and other things. Okay? But let's... We, we put so much emphasis on the, 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 Deut- the Mosaic law and wonder which parts of it needed to obey when even for the Israelites it was addendum to the covenant. It wasn't part of the original covenant. It was in addition to it. And we, you know, an addendum. We know what an addendum is. It's just kind of like an appendix. It's something that's added to change. It's, okay, we have this little bit of change. I write a book here, and then something else comes to mind, so I write an addendum to that book if I, that I might put at the end. And he put it outside outside the ark, in a sense, because it's not a book. I mean, it was, it says a book of law, but it wasn't like a book like we have, you know that. So now we come to Deuteronomy 27, 20. This is the most depressing, if not, it's one of the most depressing, and, and I know some people who this is one of their favorite chapters. What we have here, 
we have, it's a, it's a ratification. We have the Levites standing on Mount Ebal. Do I have the mountains right? Yes. They're on Mount Ebal. No, the, the Israelites, what was the other mountain? Anyway. Anyway, we were, we were on Mount Ebal, right? I should have brought a picture of it. Anyway, the Israelites are on one mountain, and the Levites are on the other. And what? Let me, let me bring this up. Stop that. Get out of there. Don't you just love it when your phone brings up some stuff? And what happens is, um, I'm trying to go down to get where it is. I'm just going to. What happens is the Levites say, "Cursed be the man who makes an idol, yada, yada, yada. And the Israelites say, amen, so be it. Then they say, cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. And the Israelites say, amen, so be it. And the, so we go back and forth, all these curses. Cursed is this person. And the Israelites are saying, amen. They're agreeing to these curses that God is saying is going to come on them because of this new law. All these curses. And all the way through the rest of chapter 27, and then chapter 28 picks up with blessings, but chapter 28 also has curses. And I have a friend of mine, this is one of his favorite chapters. And I'm like, dude, get yourself in the new covenant. I mean, I, yeah, you can take the blessings, that's fine. The blessings come with us. But we don't have any curses for disobedience anymore. But it's such a depressing thing. Because all of this, they keep saying, amen, yeah, okay, you can curse us, you can curse us, you can curse us. And... Uh, so it's, it's a depressing scene, in my opinion. If they, I, can just, I can hear the music that they'd have playing in the background if they ever did a movie for it. It is. It is a heavy load. And, and how did they feel listening to the, the, Israel, the Levites yell that, and they're saying amen to everything. You'd think your amen would get quieter and quieter because you're starting your shoulders. I can feel my shoulders slumping with every curse that's being pronounced. And I can hear this low, melancholy, minorish song playing heavily in the background if they ever, did a, if they ever played that out on a, in a movie. It's a depressing time. And all the while, what God originally wanted was a relationship with them. That's what he, that's what he offered. And why we would today, with a new covenant, resort to blessings and cursings and thinking God curses us if we do wrong or sends devastating plagues and punishments and stuff because we do wrong is beyond me why we want to go back to that. Um, in chapter 29, we have the prophesied failure. Um, we have all the curses and blessings. Chapter 29 opens up with a renewal. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make. We have the renewal of the covenant. And then Moses prophesies their failure. He says, your children are going to follow you in later generations, and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. And all the nations are going to ask, why has the Lord done this to this, to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And their answer will be, it's because the people have abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they didn't know, gods he had not given them. And the Lord's anger burned against the land, so they brought on it all the curses written in the book. He, what, what Moses is saying is, there's going to come a day where people are going to look at the destruction of this land you're standing on, and it's going to be so horrible that they're going to be like, what in the world happened that any God would do this to, to the land? 
And the answer is going to be, because you guys blew it and you didn't keep the covenant he made with you. You failed. You couldn't do it. This is, it's like, okay, I try, God is saying, I want to make you a nation of priests. You're asking for this. You're opting for me to eat a wilderness, and you're going to fail because you're a stiff-necked people. But he also prophesies their return in chapter 30. He says, the Lord your God is going to gather you and bring you back, though. He said, you're going to be taken off, but I'm going to bring, he's going to bring you back. And it's in this promise that he starts to promise the future advent of the new covenant. Because in verse, let me go to verse chapter 30. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing, the curse was I set before you, coming to go on down, and you're going to return to the Lord your God, and you're going to obey him with your heart and soul according to what I command you today. And then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, the Lord is going to gather you from there and bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you, you shall possess it. But he keeps, so that's talking about bringing them back into land. But then he goes, and moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul as you would live. This circumcising of the heart is a hinting of the new covenant. Okay, now some people think that God's going to bring people back to Israel. But this prophesied return is pre-Jesus because it's part of the, the, it's still before the new covenant because he's saying, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to bring you, I'm going to circumcise your heart. So it's, it's not after the circumcision of the heart that so he's going to bring them back. This is the first mention of the circumcision of the heart. That, that, that God's desire was, was always, always, been, always been the heart. It's never an outward display of anything. And it's, it's this first promise. You know, in, Israel, in, in Genesis, right after the fall, God promised the Messiah. Now here we have, right at the end of this blessings and cursings, you guys are going to fail, but I'm going to bring you back. And then the hint of a new covenant. It's like he's always, he's always putting promises there in the midst of all this heavy, burdensome stuff. And when they blow it, he's always still promising them, this is what's going to happen, but the day's going to come when I'm going to make a covenant with you. And, every, and everybody's going to know me. It's going to be a covenant where I'm going to circumcise your hearts. This, I'm paraphrasing a little bit what's in Jeremiah. So they're going to fail. They can't do this. But it's not because it was too difficult. Because if we look at 11 through 20, verse 11, God is saying, This commandment that I command you to today is not too difficult for you. It is not out of reach. It's not in the heaven that you should say, Well, who's going to go up to heaven to get us for us and make us hear it that we can observe it? It's not beyond the sea that you're going to say, well, who can cross the sea to get it for us and make us hear it so we, can, so we can observe it? But the word is very near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth that you can observe it. So he's telling them this isn't too difficult for you. You can do this. Some people accuse, this is, this is I was hoping I'd get this. Some people accuse God of narcissism. And some are hesitant to accuse, but concede that that's what the God of the Old Testament looks like. He's a jealous God. To our modern ears, the commands to love God can sound like arrogance. Love can't be commanded in our way of thinking. I can't, I can't command Butch to love me. Love is a gift. And so when people, when people read this, this God commanding people to love me, sounds very narcissistic. But the command to love was a greater king commanding that of a vassal, simply part of a covenant. When we get into the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, our love for him is a response to his love for us. 
faithful servants, reverential fear, and obedience all, and all that we read throughout this is all part of this. It's an expected thing that a sovereign can expect of a servant. In the new covenant, when we circumcise our hearts and we enter in a relationship with him, they all become a natural outworking of the relationship that we have with him. Well, I say natural. Natural as, the, as our mind is renewed, it becomes more and more natural. You see, some people see the sanction against the worshiping of other gods as narcissism, but the reality is within a covenant, within a covenant, the worship of another god was akin to idolatry. Or adultery, sorry. Idolatry and adultery are often linked together. Revelation refers to Israel as a whore. Hosea allegorizes God's relationship with Israel by represent, Israel representing a harlot. So we have in the Old Testament, idolatry is akin to adultery because when you enter into a covenant with a covenant, I'm in a covenant with Butch, okay? And we have a marital covenant. And if I seek after other men, that's adultery. And when Israel's in a covenant with God and they seek after other gods, that's adultery. They're violating their, their, their covenant with their partner. And it's throughout here. God's not a narcissistic God. It's not, it's not narcissism for Butch to expect that I'm going to love him. I've gone into a covenant with him that I've promised love him. It's still a gift. But it's not narcissism if he expects me to love him. It wasn't narcissism that God expects. It was part of the covenant. And it's always been, and I say always, he, he continually reminds them of his righteous acts in, 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 the whole conver, in the whole conversation of love and fear and all that. And God, was, God didn't make covenants with any other nation. He only made a covenant with Israel, which throws us off in this day and age when we think that there's still a covenant with Israel because now there's a new covenant. That covenant, Israel, his purpose for Israel was to be a priest of all nations. There was not supposed to be an original covenant. It was always God's intention to, to reach the nations with his people. And they were like, no, we don't want to do that. We have to get a meteor. So the Mosaic law came in. He's still their chosen people, but it's, it's been a foreshadow of the true of the true Israel, who will then, through remember, he was promised Abraham that, that his seed would be a blessing to all nations. Okay? So his heart has always been for all the nations. But this Mosaic covenant has veiled his heart for all the nations. And unfortunately, many of us today still think that God favors Israel over the rest of the world. It still veils some of the, heart, the hearts of some of us today. God's intention, is all, his heart has always been for the entire world. Okay, and I said the law wasn't too difficult, and many people say the law is too difficult. But what does that say about a God who's going to command you to do something you can't do? What kind of view do we present to the world of God if we say he gave people a law that was too difficult for them to keep? Um, I have a friend who would share here, which had a conversation with you about that. I'd welcome it. But I'm on your side. <laughs> I'd, I'd welcome it. I mean, and I, and we, we had a brief conversation about this. Not only did God say that they're going to, that, um, it wasn't too difficult. He, he, and their prophesied failure was not God saying, by the way, this is way too difficult. You're going to fail. It was a, because of their own hard-heartedness. You're a stiff-necked people. You're not going to be able to do this. But it's not too difficult for you. It's close to you. Have you ever had kids who are pretty stubborn? And it's not that what you're asking them to do is too difficult. It's just that they're too stubborn and they don't want to do it. And they say, but I can't. I'm only eight. <laughs> now, had they obeyed the law perfectly, which the New Testament reveals at least three people who did besides Jesus, the only reward was blessing in this life, no eternal life. There's, there's, the only blessing was the blessing listed there on Mount Ebal. Hmm. And That's right, it never mentions eternal life. Doesn't, there's no, there, no. 
The law couldn't save them. It didn't save them. So keeping the law perfectly did nothing, no matter how perfectly he kept it. The ball, Paul says that as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. Um, Luke says of Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're both righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And then the rich young ruler, God, Jesus said, this is what you can do. And he said, I've done all those commands. And now Jesus wasn't necessarily singling out several, but he was saying, in essence, have you kept the law? He listed some, but in essence he's saying, have you, you know what to do. Have you kept the law? And he said, absolutely, I've kept the law. I've kept them since my youth. And then he said, but there's one thing you haven't to have done. Go sell all you have. So he, he gives them a little bit more, which is more of a new covenant thing. Not, not as a command, but as, yes, to expose what's going on in his heart that he thinks. And so God didn't set, the law did not set God's bar, bar so high that they see the need of Jesus but it revealed man's sinfulness, is what, which is also what Romans says. It's because of the law that we're conscious of sin. Without the law, there's no transgression. So it wasn't that God said, set this bar so high that, well, he had to do that because man can't, he had to set it so high that man couldn't do it because then they're going to see their need of Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the law came to reveal man's sin, to reveal the sinfulness of their heart. And with, so... Um, so I, I'm, I'm coming to a close. I can't believe I got all this done here. I really can't. I hope that I didn't just talk too fast. Um, and I, I don't want to read all this, but I do want it. Um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy have probably caused more atheists than any other books in the Bible because of the false image of God that many people have gotten from these books. Um, Richard Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, he's a renowned atheist and scientist. He says, it's in his book, The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That guy's got a big vocabulary. He does. <laughs> he does. I, could get, I should have put the quote on there. So you can, he does like to be impressive, but each one of these is taken from the Pentateuch. Man, I gotta say that's 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 a we have to have an answer to that. And we don't, we haven't so far. We have we haven't known how to answer that. It's painful to read Richard Dawkins' thing. It's painful to hear my my daughter's going through some of that right now, and she's not accepting some of my explanations. That's what I'm saying. She's wrestling with it. She's wrestling with it. And it's we and yes, we do. We can't just say, well, he was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old He was the God of the Old Testament, but that was ne- his heart was never revealed. There is continuity. His heart was never revealed. The God that we see in the Old Testament is a direct result of the Israelites saying, No, we don't want an intimate relationship with you. We want rules. We don't we don't want and we don't want to be your priest. We just want this covenant. And we just we just want to we want a distant relationship with you. We want a mediator. And then God gives this covenant, and then later all these laws, and he has to go into battle on behalf of them. Isn't that your answer? Well, people, it is in a sense. It's God obligated himself. Number one, God obligated himself. That's one thing. That God obligated himself. Had he not gone to war with them, he would have been considered an unfaithful God. And he was willing to sacrifice his reputation in order to uphold his word. Number two, God has also allowed the history, 
the, the view of him, the story of him to be, written by, to be written by fallible men. So we represent him. They represent him in the Old Testament, and we represent him. I think, I think we all have to wrestle with that and come to our answer. And it doesn't help that we have it doesn't help that we have pastors and leading theologians looking at this and saying it's okay for God to kill, arbitrarily kill. Who are we to question God? Absolutely. And even I've even heard one that could not bring himself to condemn a person who killed someone in the name of Jesus. That couldn't bring, because God, because God does arbitrarily tell people to kill people. And I'd have to go back and find it. And I said, I don't, I don't want to libel the guy. Because um, I don't, I, it's been a long time since I heard it, and I was just so disgusted that I don't really listen to much of what he says anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We, we have to come to grips with the fact that the God we see in the Old Testament does not represent the, God, the heart of God, that Jesus is the accurate representation of the Father's heart. And when we got that, then we could start to really look at the Old Testament um, in a way that we can figure out and try to ex not explain away those things. Yeah, liberal theologians would say that's just stories. And they would, they would discount um, the, the truthfulness. I was going to say accuracy, but accuracy wasn't the word I wanted. They would, they would discount, the, the, they would just say it's just myths and fables yeah, similar to the Greek stories. No, we believe in the reliability of the Bible. Yes, they would, they would liken those more to the myths and fables like the Greeks and the Romans have. That's part of their history. We have these, so it's part of Christian history. And I don't, I don't think we can do that, but we can accurately say that the Israelites requested God to in, be in a relationship with them that then marred his reputation until Jesus came along. And God was willing to do it, to be in relationship with man. He was willing to sacrifice all that. He was willing to let man interpret him, and he's still willing to let us interpret him to the world. And it's a responsibility that we carry, and it's a sobering responsibility that we carry. To represent him. It also means when we look at this, we can't, can't quote one part of the law as apical and not another part. We can't forbid tattoos while we're eating bacon. Why not? Because it's inconsistent. That was my well, I guess we should eat tattoos. And, and <laughs> I think I messed that one up. Okay. There was, um, there was a, a church leader named Marcion, and we don't have any of his writings, but we do have responses to them. So it's really not fair to label him as saying something. We have, we're, whenever you're reading another man's response to a certain person, you've got to be really careful. But anyway, according to the responses we have to Marcion, evidently what he was teaching was that the God of the Old Testament was not the father of Jesus because Jesus is nothing like the God of the Old Testament. And this was in the, this was in the second century. So we've been, we've been wrestling with this view of God of the Old Testament, trying to rectify it with Jesus found in the New Testament for almost 2,000 years now. Mm -hmm. So the God who made everything is evil and a great Satan, but the Jesus who frees us from physical life is full of love and goodness. So where does Jesus come? Who, who? 
I've not really researched this stuff because my question would be then who is Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? A God higher than the God of the Old Testament? And I think I'm, I'm skipping the question and just adding one of the And Marcion liked the Gospel of John and didn't like Luke and Matthew and Mark because he didn't like Jewishness. Oh, okay. And he okay. Liked he, Paul because there was more Gentile thought. There was more Gentile thought. He liked that better. And he appealed to Gentile thinking and logic and, and all. So he was a big reason why we have Bibles. Marcion? Yeah, it was the, like to refute him, you had to figure out, wait a minute, no, what we actually believe, the Christians actually believe the Old Testament. Yes, right. New Testament books, not yeah. just Paul, yeah. and not just John. Mm -hmm. So Marcion did a good job motivating us to say, hold on now, these books are true. Yeah, yeah. Good job, buddy. Bad job. <laughs> and and we, we're still doing that today, and we need to come to grips with, that, with all that. But we need to know that Jesus is the exact representation now, while we're talking about Deuteronomy and Leviticus and how horribly they portray God, we also are, we are looking at those through the eyes of a modern, modern um, we have much more humane ways of dealing with things today. But if you would, and so we're comparing Deuteronomy, the laws in Deuteronomy, to our current laws, which, I mean, but if you would compare it to the laws of the day, you would find the, code, the, the laws and the punishments in, the book, in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus far more merciful. Right. For instance, um, well, we'll go with one of the most well-known law codes of that day was the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi has about 282 laws. Now, um, the law, I'm reading this here. Thank you. Yes. So, in, for example, in the Bible... If someone stole something, he had to repay four times the value. But according to Hammurabi, he had his hand cut off. Absolutely. Okay? The Code of Hammurabi had at least 16 punishments that involved mutilation. None of the laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus did. There is one verse. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together, and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts her hand out and seizes his genitals, then you should cut off her hand. You should not show pity. That's the only one. But when we look at the original, it's much softer. It involves more of a shaming, a humiliation, not a mutilation, because the word hand is not the typical word for hand, yad. It's kaf. And kaf is often translated for pelvic area. We're getting a little bit detailed here, aren't we? And the verb form that we think of as cutting off her hand, so is has a mild, it means more to shave or to, to clip. It doesn't mean to cut off. So it's not that verse in the original language was not a mutilation, but it was a humiliation. She's going to humiliate this man, so we're going to, her punishment is humiliation. We see much of that in the Old Testament is more of a rest, retribution not mutilation in the laws of the Old Testament, whereas many of the laws of the day would have required mutilation. Okay? So, a disconnect happens in our hearts when we read the old the Mimothaic law, if we think that it represents God's heart. We've talked about enough. We believe... Go ahead. There's got to be someone who's preached on that passage. Oh, I know. You wonder. We should look for it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I'm not going to so go there. Because I wouldn't be surprised if some patriarchal pastor has preached on that passage. In church meetings, there's a lot of Bible verses that if you read them in church, oh yeah, yeah, blush. yeah. We also believe the law reveals God's holiness, but it doesn't. It's never intended to. It was about adding a law 
that turned their existing covenant into a vassal covenant, creating more of a, created more of a burden for them. But he also, in his goodness, gave them the law that was better than any, any of that of the surrounding nations around them. Right. I would say that it's by following his law mm -hmm. that they reveal their holiness, their dedication. Their holiness, yeah. And they look different than the nations yeah. who don't have. Because yeah. there's a lot of wisdom yeah. in God's law oh, yeah. that's very preserving mm -hmm. of life. Yeah. God's holiness, though, far exceeds what we have in Deuteronomic law. His holiness far, I mean, and it's, it doesn't, I mean, slavery doesn't reflect God's heart. And, and throughout our, na in, in the early part of our nation, we defended slavery because, because God instituted it. God allowed it. And the key is if God allows it, it doesn't mean it represents his heart. Right. Parents selling their daughters doesn't reflect his heart. Those are the hard, there's a hard passage in the, it's hard passages for a woman to read. Um, I'm glad I'm through them. I'm in. I'm into Samuel now, and I'm because there, there, there are hard passages to read, and I've shared some before. You know, even an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth wouldn't reflect God's heart. Wasn't some of these things though picked up from surrounding mm -hmm. countries? I mean, Probably. That was like, like for instance, when um, when the Palestinians would take over the Amorites. They would kill all the men. Yeah. Because they couldn't, they couldn't control the men, but they could control the women and children. Of course, I was just reading when Ephraim messed up and they all got killed. Then I'm like, oh, but what are we going to do now? Because now we're going to have one tribe that's totally cut off. So they go to another village, kill a bunch of men, and bring the wives, the women and children over to be wives for them. I'm thinking, this is weird. I'm sorry. And this is God's people. It's like, what? Wow. You know, the, the, the New Testament says you've heard, Matthew says you've heard this has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that even doesn't represent God's heart or his justice. Because what does he say? I say unto you, if a man, finish it for me, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If a man takes something, we give, give him more. So if a man takes your coat, give him your cloak. That's love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute. And later Jesus says, not just love your enemies, you have to love them the way I love you. That's what reveals God's heart. Not, this, this here was a, was a, was a way of, of kind of God condescending to what they could do, what they could understand, and, and what they could enter into, knowing that there was coming a day where Jesus was going to fully represent him, and the people were going to enter into a relationship with Jesus, and they were going to be able to become like him. They're going to be transformed into his image. 8.30, any questions? I cannot believe I told Mom if I'm going to get through all this, and I didn't want to get through the, and not talk about defending a defense of God. Uh, say some positive things about the law. Um, well, the one positive I feel about the law is that while to us it seems strict, it wasn't much improvement on the laws of the day. It was merciful compared to the laws of the day. Um, I... Their dietary laws, yes. Extremely helpful for just elevating the health of their community because of their dietary laws. The the law about circumcising a child on the eighth day that was that's the optimal level of vitamin K, K to allow for for clotting. So a lot of those laws had health and other benefits to them that they that that elevated Israel above the nations. Of, of surrounding them. Um, 
There, Paul talks about Paul talks about the law being a tutor, and that is a good thing. It's something that kept them in check until the true. I want to say well, the true Israel came till Jesus came. So this this law was like a guardian that kept them. I don't know, safe is that the word I want? It taught them. It was it, not a tutor that taught it. It was more of a guardian, is what Paul meant. And and so that's a good thing that it, that it that it was like this fence for them until they could enter into until Jesus comes and they could handle freedom. So they can't really handle freedom here because they don't have the Holy Spirit for one. They're, they're not into this covenant where their hearts have been circumcised. Right. Okay, so it, the law was a guardian that kept them in, in, in this boundary kind of, if they obeyed it. But then when Jesus comes, not only does Jesus bring a covenant that circumcises our hearts, we also have, also have the Holy Spirit within us. We have his indwelling presence. So now we can handle freedom. Now we can, we can truly be a free people and and follow, like what Paul says, don't use your freedom in a way that's, uh, um, it's, it's Galatians, as a license to sin, thank you. They'd had that kind of freedom back there, they couldn't have, they needed the law. So there are, there are good things about the law. But it, what, the important thing for us to remember is it was never God's heart. It was never intended to reveal God's heart. But even in that, it still did, to a yeah, certain I extent. About, I was about to say, if you take context into it, yes. Absolutely. Really points to his heart. Yes. But it points beyond itself. Yeah, it does. It like moves the standard from yep. the culture, like women are property. Mm-hmm. Now women can own property. Now can, yes. Yep. Like slaves mm-hmm. are, you can kill your slave if he makes you upset. No, you can actually make your slave your family. Mm-hmm. Yep. If he could go yep. free, he might want to join the yep. whole family as an equal. Mm-hmm. Like and you can't throw away your female slave. I mean, it sound, that the difference between male and female slaves, it sounds misogynist, but in that day it protected her from just being thrown away because she was used goods. Right. So we look at the law from where we are, and we look at it through our filter, and it looks horrible. But if we get in the day and the age, and we look this way, we see his mercy, and we see it pointing toward Jesus. Pointing the right direction. Yeah, from here, from here. From here, and that so today, and that, and I think that would be one thing I could tell someone when we look at the law through the lens of our day, then it does look horrible. When we get inside the lens of that day and look at the opposite direction, we realize how merciful and loving God was. Right. I have a whole lesson part of this, part of this is a lesson on going through Galatians, and a lot of this, that same thing so, that it's superior, superior, or you don't want to live by the he law. Died he he died law. to get us out of the law, he died to give us freedom. He died. And, and we can live it because he's inside of us. You all right, Mary? You're doing good? It's, all right, just, just checking. I guess Carolyn doesn't have any questions, so then we can, we can close. Um, she's not there anymore. She's not there anymore. Well, we're done. Okay. All right, I guess I should just go ahead and pray then. Yep. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your heart and that we can know you and that you invite us into intimacy with you, and that's always been your plan all along. I pray the truth of who you are would be revealed through our lives as it was first revealed in Jesus, and that we would come to know who you really are, and that we can reveal that to people around us, those who still see you as the, as the vindictive God of the Old Testament. 
and those who still keep you at a distance because that's how they see you. May we be, bring healing and truth and light. May we help them see um, the truth of who you are as revealed in Jesus and in, as revealed through us. And I pray that you would increase um, our understanding of who you are and renew our minds as to who you are. That we, can, that we would truly be, as Peter said, as you first offered the Israelites, um, a nation, a royal priesthood who represents you to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.